Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Shall Be Well. I'm Anne Boyd, host of All Shall Be Well, a podcast by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We're here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a conversation with Dr. Susan Maros, professor, researcher, and leadership coach. Susan has written a new book entitled Calling in Context, Social Location and Vocational Formation, and it releases in April 2022, and it's available for pre-order right now at ivypress.com. In our conversation, Susan and I talk about the ways we need to expand our understanding of the concept of calling in a way that integrates our whole selves. We talk about how hindsight is often the best way we can identify patterns that reveal our calling. And Susan shares some practical suggestions for ways to grow in discernment. One of the things I love most about Susan's work in this book is the way she bases her approach to calling on the knowledge that God is gracious and loving and isn't trying to test us to see if we get things right. The whole conversation and the book is filled with grace and it feels like a breath of fresh air infused into a topic that can often feel intense and heavy. I loved this conversation. And I even kept a few parts in that were impacted by some technical difficulties and a little bit of background noise. But don't worry, you can understand every bit of it. In fact, if you hang in all the way till the end of the credits, you can hear a masterful bit of Susan's wisdom over the pleasant buzz of gardening sounds near her office. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Susan Maros has a PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary and is an affiliate assistant professor of Christian leadership at that seminary, where she has also served as a doctoral supervisor and an adjunct professor at the King's University in South Lake, Texas. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I would love to begin with something super practical that I'm really interested to learn about. Early in your book, you spent some time talking about the use of names and titles in different cultures. And I'm wondering if we can take a moment for you to teach us here in real time about how to ask those questions about name and title preferences. And I'd like to ask how you would prefer I address you. Well, that even how you've done that, right? How would you prefer to be addressed? is a great question or or in a more conversational context asking people you know what are you called in your family or Mm. what do your nieces or nephews or younger children in your community call you Um, it it can bring up some of those conversations about what are honorifics that are present in a given context now for me personally i get asked that question because i have a PhD, so I'm Dr. Maros, and mm-hmm. there are contexts in which I may be called Dr. Maros, especially in the classroom. You know, students will ask me, what do you want to be called? Sure. Um, my common answer is whatever is the norm in a given context, 
is what I'll go with. Hmm. So there are some contexts in which I'm called Susan. There's some I'm Dr. Susan. There's some I'm Dr. Maros. So in terms of this podcast, my answer to you is, what do you normally call your guests? Do you use titles? If you don't use titles, don't use title. You know, it, whatever is the norm. I have one caveat, and I will talk about this sometimes with people, which is, um, particularly in classroom settings, uh, is, is there consistency, mm-hmm. right? I've been in some contexts where people are being introduced around the table, and the men are introduced with their title, and the women, who also have doctorates, are introduced by their first name. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a time where I don't follow the common practice in that context. Mm-hmm detitling women, I don't, I, I won't follow that practice. It, there's also the flip side of awareness. Uh, in part, it was provoked for me by one of the people whose story is in the book, uh, Dr. Joyce Del Rosario, mm-hmm. hearing her talk about why she requires her students to use her title, and that it is an honoring of 400 years of her ancestors and her family and her entire community that made it possible for her to get a PhD and to be a professor. You know, she requires the title as an honoring of her family, which made me think about it, you know, in that sense too, that sometimes using people's titles is a way of honoring their entire community and where they've come from and how it's been possible for them to have the role that they have. So titles and names can be they're full of cultural meaning and significance, yeah. and they can be really tricky. Uh, but those are great things to be thinking about, about how we value people and how we honor their stories. Well, and I love the way that you recommend asking people what their preference is, yeah. because I think, you know, from from my culture, from my, you know, white American, evangelical, Protestant, whatever culture, the the way to make someone feel comfortable is to say, oh, well, call me by my first name. But I hear you saying, and I think I've learned from your book, that sometimes that makes someone uncomfortable if they're yeah. used to to adding an honorific or including that in the, in the names. So since you've written this book about calling, I would love for you, and I'm going to call you Susan, because that is what I call everyone else on the <laughs> podcast. I would love for you, Susan, to share a sketch of what your own journey of calling has been like? How would you describe that process? Yeah, yeah. The reason I hesitate is because I can tell the story in the sort of clear, linear, this happened, this happened, this happened, you know, kind of way that is possible looking back, right? We make sense of our lives retrospectively. Mm-hmm. We look back. And so I can say, from where I stand right now, I can look back and see God's hand on my life, the ways that I had opportunities to engage in leadership. I had pastors and teachers and community members who believed in me and spoke blessing, called out gifting in me, named those things in me, helped me develop in those things, helped me form as a person Mm -hmm. where doors were opened, opportunities were opened. Um, How I became a professor is is a a story of a series of divine coincidences, you know, where there was no great thundering voice from heaven, you know, no extraordinary Mm -hmm. circumstance. It was just the quiet series of providential circumstances that I can look back to and point to and say, God was at work, God was doing that. The reason I hesitate to tell my calling story that way is because we don't experience it that way 
in the moment. Right. You know, our experience of it is messy and convoluted and full of questions and seeming dead ends and going round and round things, you know, round the backside of the desert a few dozen times. And it's it's much we tell it in a we tell our stories in a linear fashion, but it's it's much more like that line is this plate of spaghetti, giant plate of spaghetti, you know, where it's mm-hmm. it's very convoluted. Um, and it's hard to tell the convoluted part, you know, that, that's not how we tell stories. And it, and it takes too much time. So in terms of my own sense of call, I've had a long, a theme for a long time in my life of a, of a passion for the formation of leaders and how God develops and shapes people across a lifetime. Um, and that it was a process of different doors opening and being faithful in some things and other times where God just brought somebody to make an opportunity available and I stepped into it um, and continued to press into that sense that my life is about the formation of leaders. It's it's about um, my hero in scripture, and I mentioned this at, at one point in the book, I think, where my hero in scripture is Barnabas. Although not Barnabas as we think of Paul's helper. You know, that's our misunderstanding of <laughs> Barnabas. You know, he was he was Paul's mentor. He was Paul's sponsor. He was Paul's mission leader. He he was a lot of things to Paul. Um, and that is an example of what I think a Barnabas person does, is intervene in people's lives in a timely manner, in moments of important, significant development uh, that helps them become who God has called them to be. And so the way Barnabas is overshadowed by Paul or overshadowed by John Mark is, is what happens to Barnabas people. And we delight in it when we see people flourish in, in what God has called them to be and to do. And so that's, that's sort of my overarching sense of purpose and direction mm-hmm. um, in the journey. Yeah, I can point to key milestones in my life, but that gives an impression that the line was clear, that it was always a, a clear step-by-step journey when in reality the experience of it was a lot of god where are you what am i supposed to do you know help i I need to see i need to know clearly lord when am i going to know and when are you going to open a door and all of of those kinds of um, yearnings that i was responding to in writing this book Uh, those kinds of how do i know how do i know my call well, I had that same experience too, and still do, as God continues to shape and form me and draw me into future next seasons of of how I how I'm participating with God in God's work in the world. I love so much about that, and one of the things that stood out as you were talking is the way your the way you describe your call as being modeled after the person of Barnabas and the way that you encourage others and open doors for others, that kind of call overarches it. Well, I guess it spans a greater, a greater area than just your professional vocation, Mm. I would imagine. Yes. And I would love, I mean, it seems like when people talk about calling, it's really often about just about your job, just about what you're getting paid to do. And how do you break, I mean, in your research and, in conversations, how have you seen that that distinction break down? Well, absolutely, I agree that that is so much the common mental model, the mental map of calling. Even the word vocation 
you know, yeah. theologically, vocation is a synonym for calling since mm -hmm. it comes from the, the Latin to call. But we think about vocation in terms of career, mm -hmm. at least in the U.S. That, that's our dominant model is calling is about what job am I supposed to have or what role. Maybe it's a job, but unpaid. You know, so there is that space for right. I might have a, a role, but there's a there's a task for me to do. There's a role for me to do. And I do see it as I think that our, our purpose, like our our that inner compass, you know, we have that that points to some north. That's mm -hmm. our sense of direction, our sense of, OK, why? Why are we here? What 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 matters about our lives? that that is far broader than our role or occupation. You know, my, my sense of, of being a Barnabas person impacts how I am in my church, as a member of my church, how, am I, how I am as a neighbor, how I am raising my children, how mm -hmm. I am in my friendships. You know, the, the, the person that I am and what matters to me is something that I express in all of my roles. And in terms of the development of calling and the discovery of calling that can be really freeing to people to realize it isn't about finding the right job mm -hmm. it's about being who god has created you to be in all of the contexts that you're in uh, and so maybe your major contribution to the world might be in the context of a job but maybe it isn't yeah uh, and, and all of that is legitimate that can be hard for people to accept because that calling equals job is so is such a strong mental model, such a strong and dominant cultural model that it can be hard to think about, well, it's about the whole of my life and right. how I engage, how I perceive God at work and how I perceive God's invitation to participate in that and engage with that in the whole of my life. Do you find this true um, beyond the United States? Is this is this true all over the world? Uh, yes and no. Um, and I, I can't, in, in one sense, I don't I feel like I can speak authoritatively for any other particular context, you know, because mm -hmm. this is the one, the United States is the one that I know best, I've lived in the most. But certainly as I'm listening to my colleagues, my friends, my students, my church members who come from other contexts, um, there is still a tendency to equate calling with a role, not necessarily a job, hmm. but a role. Okay. Okay. So, so there is this tendency to equate, what am I supposed to do? Like, what's my task? Um, one of the things that's really different that I find outside of the U.S., first of all, in the U.S., we have such an individualistic way of framing calling. How do I discern what I am supposed to do with my life? What's my ministry, right? We use first person pronouns all the time. We may engage community. And there's some really good literature on, on vocation for the common good, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's how do I engage the community for the community's good? It's right. still individualistic, but at least it's thinking about the good of the community. Mm -hmm. That's great. Still individualistic, though. Or how do I hear from my community about my call? You know, how does my community help me discern what I'm supposed to do? So, strong individualistic yeah. element in the U.S. Whereas when I'm listening to people from other contexts, there's a much stronger sense of what is the community 
asking me to do? What does the community need? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of nuanced, and it's a little bit hard for me to wrap my brain around because I'm so formed in individualism. It, you know, it's hard for me to imagine yeah. something else. But nevertheless, um, well, let me let me give an example in a story. I was sitting around a table with a group of pastors from South Africa, and we were sharing stories. You know, how, t- tell me about your your journey and your experience. And so there was a phrase that most of them, maybe even all of them used. When I received my call, right? When I received my call. Well, I had a colleague with me um, who I also mentioned in the book, Birgit Herpich. Um, She had been working in in Ghana. Um, So not South Africa, not the same cultural context, but at least she had been in Africa, which Mm I had only ever visited. And so afterwards, she, she said to me, did you understand what they were saying? I was like, well, yeah, I think so. In my mind, what I understood them to be saying was when I understood what my call was supposed to be. And she said, no, what they were saying was when the community determined I was called. Wow. Right. And, and I couldn't I couldn't hear it or I couldn't see it or I couldn't think about it in that way because it was I, I heard yeah. it through the lenses, through the filters of my individualistic experience. But they had a an experience of the community has a sense of identity. The community have a, has a sense of need. And so the community acts to say, who is who is God gifted in this way? And how how is this need going to be filled from within our community and draws out the call from the individuals who are part of that community? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can, I, the, the first thing that comes to my mind, the only thing I can equate it with is, um, an arranged marriage that, Mm. you know, that they're submitting yourself to a community, um, to make such an important decision for your life. But I can also see the, you know, the negative sides of our view in the United States of, you know, bristling against that, you know, who are you to tell me what to do, but it's so interesting, so complicated. The one of the other things that you mention in your story that I think um, is a thread through the whole book is the tendency um, for some of us to look for calling as what am I supposed to do? How do I know that I'm hearing God correctly? What is mm-hmm. the right path? Mm-hmm. And you give such a broader a broader vision for this kind of thing. Tell us more about that, about your journey. Did you, did, had, did you start off looking for the right way? <laughs> I probably did. You know, that's, that's one of those things about telling your story in retrospect. And I'm right. going to tell the story how it, how it seems to me now. Um, and certainly for the years that I was part of a Pentecostal context, you know, there's such a strong expectation of hearing directly from God. Yeah. You know, and I had that too, you know, that I need to hear. I think what I've come to over years is recognizing that God is at work in all sorts of ways, mm-hmm. right? And maybe there's a direct assignment and 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 a kind of a, a well, to you, in my Pentecostal community, right? This direct, clear sense of hearing from God and knowing what it is I'm supposed to do, but it isn't necessarily, why does it have to be the burning bush or the road to Damascus? You know, why, why is it, 
is God's providential work, not equally God at work. And so that, that was part that was part of my process. What's held in common is this concern about knowing and the anxiety to know. Sure. And and I find that dynamic really interesting. Like why why are we so anxious to know? What does that say? Not about our spouse theology. Like we believe God is at work. We believe God calls people. You know, they're, they're the things that we espouse that we say, yes, I believe this. But then with our emotions and our behaviors, we're, sh- we're showing we believe some different things. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so I have to know. I have to know what's the right decision. Sometimes that anxiety, what that anxiety suggests is that what we actually believe is that God is somehow standing at a distance with a clipboard you know, wait, yes or no? You know, do you get the test right? <clears throat> nope, you made the wrong decision. Can't do anything with you. You know, right. or somehow, somehow we'll make a wrong choice and, and God will be in heaven going, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do now. You know, oh dear, this right. is, <laughs> I'm the, how can I possibly make this one right? You know, it, it, it's, we demonstrate with our reactions that we have a theology of somehow, I don't know, that we have to perform perfectly or God can't use us or that that God is a stern taskmaster that's just waiting for us to fail there, there are a lot of things that it, that this kind of anxiety about knowing brings up for us now meanwhile there's some really practical things like you know mm-hmm. should I should I go to school or not it's going to have impact on my family should what where what occupation should I pursue should I move from this place to that place you know should I marry or not? Should I have children or not? Should I, all of the kinds of significant life choices we make, they have impact. And so wanting to make them with a sense of God's blessing, God's presence, God's guidance, God's wisdom. Yeah, we really want that. And can we acknowledge when our anxiety about it demonstrates something something is off in our understanding of who God is and how we're reacting to God, that maybe, maybe God's a lot more patient and gracious and mm-hmm. creative yeah. than, than we anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, in my own life, um, I have been profoundly influenced by the, the St. Ignatius examine which you, you mentioned in your, in your book, this ability to, or this practice of at the end of the day, looking back on your day, what was something that drew me closer to God? What pulled me far farther away? And what I have learned is that part of that decision-making process and discernment is almost sometimes about knowing my deepest self, knowing what I want. Well, Susan, many of our podcast listeners are pursuing work in university or professional settings. And along the way, they are pursuing their understanding of their calling. So I'm wondering if you can give just some first recommendations of where they might start as they sort through the concept of calling. Mm. Well, I I liked you mentioned earlier, uh, the prayer of examine, Mm -hmm. right? Where, Where am I what are the consolations? What are the desolations? Where am I experiencing God? Where am I experiencing the presence? Where am I experiencing the absence of God? Uh, that's one place I would suggest as a start. Um, it, that isn't a, 
you know, five easy steps to knowing your purpose in life kind of right. direction. It's really an invitation to press into the journey that that I think the the process is more important to God, that the journey is more important to God than than the outcome, than the knowing, than the producing. And so where where do we experience God? And where do we experience the absence of God? So in our occupations, in our work, what is it about that those tasks, that engagement, that we have a sense of God's blessing, God's grace? If we want to ask the question in psychological terms, you know, where do we experience flow? Mm-hmm. Is I think I think that's an expression of, of of the outcome of calling, in a sense that that as we do work that God has called us to, that God has gifted us for, that God has shaped us for, that we do experience these times of flow of where we're just engaged in the work and we're loving the work. So is is there space to reflect on that? You know, where where do I love what I do the most? And where does it most, where is it most taxing? Where is it most, where is it most life-giving? And where is it most life-taking? Um, and to be mindful in the midst of that kind of exploration, what what might God be saying in the midst of that? And how how might I be experiencing God's invitation to something different or to press into what is present? Or how can I become more attuned to God's accompaniment in the midst of this? Uh, God walking with me and inviting me to walk with God as I'm doing my work, as I'm living my life, as I'm engaging in my community, Um, which you know, I so I, I kind of hesitate as I say that. You know, I, I'm often asked the question. You know, what advice would you give? Sure. And I struggle to know how to answer because I think what we want so much of the time is to have a roadmap. Mm-hmm. And I think what God is saying is, "Walk with me." Hmm. That's a really good way of saying it. And I mean, I love. I love the the St. Ignatius examine because of the dailiness of it. And Mm. it's always felt accessible to me. It does not take very long. Do you have any other suggestions? So I I suggest reading biographies and autobiographies Mm. with a caveat. The way we tell stories about our lives, you know, as I I mentioned before, you know, we we tell them in a really linear fashion. Um, But I do think that reading people's stories can be really helpful to reflect on ways in which God moves, ways in which God has led people, different kinds of life experiences. Uh, I find it super, super helpful to, to read stories from people who have experiences quite different from my own. Hmm. Um, it provokes reflection on ways in which, oh, that, that's, not, that's not the experience I had. I had this experience. Uh, or, or oh wow, I, I never encountered that kind of challenge, but I encountered this kind of challenge. Uh, those can be very helpful for broadening out my understanding of how God works and what calling looks like when I can read a variety of different different life experiences and life stories. Um, some that can be really helpful to people to mm-hmm. to read stories. That's a great suggestion. And 
particularly because you include a number of calling stories from different people in the book, as well as discussion questions and some invitations to explore particular stories from the Bible. This is kind of putting you on the spot, but do you have one of those stories of people or, or from scripture, something that comes to the top of your mind that you'd like to tell right here? Well, maybe, maybe I can mention two, one, one from scripture and one from the book. Mm -hmm. um, pastor Jean Birch is a pastor of a um, traditional African-American congregation in Northwest Pasadena. And her story is one that I tell uh, in the chapter when I'm looking at power and thinking about power, uh, because she's such an exemplar of somebody who, who engages in her community, uh, is a, a witness, a gospel witness, but also engages in really practical ways, um, and how she has to have both the spiritual authority of a pastor as well as the practical political savvy to deal with uh, city and regional governments as she is the executive director of a nonprofit that provides low-income housing. So th that's an example of a story I tell, and it's just a great, I I'm so grateful to, to Pastor Jean for uh, giving me permission to tell her story because I think it's such a, a great model of how there's a diversity of engagement in a variety of contexts um, and then the, the ways in which we um, participate with God's work uh, in, in concrete, practical ways, as well as um, the more, quote unquote, spiritual, like church, you know, program kind of ways. Mm -hmm. um, and then the biblical example that also comes to mind, kind of parallel to that, Nehemiah is one of the biblical stories that I, I tell and draw from in the book, as well as in my teaching, uh, in part because when we think about biblical exemplars of calling, the people we tend to think of first are people like Moses or Paul or Abraham or David, you know, somebody like that, or the disciples. Uh, and if we look at Nehemiah and look at his building of the wall and his being governor, I, I love to ask the question when I'm in a discussion context, you know, was Nehemiah called to do what he did? And that's a fun conversation because people will be like, well, yes, because because he had such a passion for it and because God blessed him and, and gave him success. You know, so, yes, he was called. And then other people say, well, I don't know that he was really called because we never have any mention of God saying to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you should go to Jerusalem and build a wall. So was that a call? Was that not a call? That's just a really fun conversation to have. And the, the reason I, I mentioned Pastor Jean and Nehemiah in the same context is because both are engaged in some really practical things in the world. They're having to deal with governments. They're having to deal with political entities. They're having to deal in multicultural settings, multi-ethnic settings. They're having to deal with a community that is suffering, that has uh, has been undermined and has had its resources limited, and so how do you how do we engage that as people of faith, and how do we step forward and see God's justice and God's kingdom and God's blessing come to a community where the walls have been torn down, um, and both Nehemiah in that sense and Pastor Jean in the sense of of a current event 
both of, for both of them, part of their calling was building a wall, yeah. was, was, was building up places of refuge for the people of God to be able to flourish. Um, and so, yeah, these are, these are not the first kinds of stories that come to mind when we talk about calling, mm-hmm. right? We, we think about a burning bush. We think about an encounter on the road to Damascus. But what if it's, what if it's I, I walk out in the city and my heart is broken? Hmm. And I think I can do something about this. I think I need to do something about this. God, help me. Give me favor to do something about this. Hmm. It's such a refreshing way of looking at calling. It's it's so generous. There's so much space for conversation with God and with community and understanding yourself. There's so many things that I love about this book and about the way that you help expand our vision of calling. Mm. And one thing in particular that I just can't stop thinking about personally, toward the very end, you offer some observations about legacy. And you say that our legacy is really just being part of God's work. It's not about leaving something with your name on it. And you write in the book, our job is not to leave a legacy, our task is to be faithful. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that, about ways that you've seen people embrace this idea or resist it. Yeah. Well, let me let me start even with my own story about that, because mm-hmm. part of my own journey was particularly in my 20s, you know, just this yearning to do something significant. You know, I, I want to go out there. I want to change the world for Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want, I, I wouldn't say it out loud at the time. And I don't even know that I acknowledged it to myself. But at the time it was, I want to, I want to live a life that people would write books about. You know, that's, I want to do great things. And so I headed off in a, with the mission organization. And, you know, I, I, there were excellent experiences. I learned a lot. I have some great stories out of it. Um, and yet I wasn't doing these big, dynamic, fantastic things that I that I so yearn to do. And I've come to understand that part of that was God's work in my life. Like the, there is a, there is a sense in which seeing the world changed and seeing, seeing God's kingdom come and seeing righteousness and justice and equity and seeing healing and health and hope, you know, those are things God wants. And so that, that internal yearning to be a part of that and leave something to the world that the world is a better place because I was in it is part of God's call is part of something that God actually wants to have happen. And it also came out of personal brokenness. You know, I pay attention to me, uh, notice me, uh, value me. I want to, I want to prove those people that ignored me wrong. You know, so there, there was also that human broken component that just wanted to produce something to make space for myself in the world, if that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's this mixture as people have that kind of yearning to leave a legacy or or, are thinking about that for the folks who do. And I recognize temperament wise, not everybody thinks in terms of legacy, but there are, there are some of us who, who that's a big deal to us. You know, I I want, I want to leave my mark. I want, I want some, 
want to contribute something that lasts, um, that that part of God's process in our lives, in our formation, is really it's not about what we produce. It, the pr- production is a byproduct of the relationship, not not the purpose of the relationship with God. And that that takes some formation. That takes some time for that to be formed in our spirit, to be mm-hmm. shaped in us. Um, so so I have come to, and I do preach and I do teach. You know, it isn't about leaving legacy. That's not our job. It is, it's not... Again, God's not in heaven with a clipboard going, you know, did you, okay, did you produce enough? No, sorry, you you only produced, you know, three people came to faith in your lifetime because of your work. So right. you didn't get four. <laughs> so, eh, you know, you got to see on, you know, it, it's, <laughs> we have this, this, this sense of kind of God checking us out and, and testing us. And somehow we have to perform to some level. Uh, and it, that's so not who God is and what God's inviting us to, that it's really, I I have such a conviction as we're yearning to leave a legacy or we're yearning to be engaged with God's work in the world, that if our hearts are toward being faithful, you know, the, if we really, to the best of our ability, and some days the best of our ability is terrible, but to the best of our ability, we get up in the morning and we try to be faithful in that day with our sense of what it is God has given us to do. And we're as obedient as we know how to be, we're as faithful as we know how to be. That my conviction is we cannot miss God. It's impossible. Hmm. It's impossible to not ultimately have the life that God desires for us to live or to be the people God desires us to be um, because God's going to be in that process. Um, and yeah, will we make mistakes? Of course. Will we get it wrong? Of course. Will we will we blow it sometimes? Absolutely. Uh, and God, that's part of the process. God's in the midst of that too. So it isn't about, um, oh my goodness, I have to identify my legacy. I have to be strategic. I have to make sure I build it. Although sometimes faithfulness can be, maybe, maybe the next faithful step is writing a five-year plan. I mean, that's possible that that's what God leads somebody to, but that's not... I think we we take on responsibility that isn't ours, that we have to strategically plan our lives and make sure we produce in ways that, that God isn't asking of us. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be who we are in the world. And do we do we actually believe that we are human beings, right? We we have that phrase. We're not we're human beings, not human doings. Right. But then but then we live in ways that show that we really believe that we actually are human doings. Um, so can we can we receive that invitation um, into enoughness that daily, to the best of my ability, I'm being faithful daily? Hmm. Well, Susan, as we wrap up this conversation, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what your hopes are for this book. What do you hope this book might accomplish in the world? Hmm. Well, one of my main hopes is that I, I hope people who read it will find that it encourages helpful reflection on the whole of their experience, uh, that they're invited to bring the whole of themselves, all of their personality and culture and 
um, life events and context and just everything about their experience to the conversation of calling. Uh, there's a welcome to be uniquely who they are and to tell their specific story, their particular story of, of how they've experienced and encountered God. Um, I, I'm hoping that the book represents kind of setting a big table where we we sit down for a wonderful meal and we have this broad conversation where we can really hear hear one another's stories and have our own story heard. Um, that's, that's my hope that that's mm. the experience of this book. And then kind of secondarily, um, I'm hoping that that will help foster our engagement in the world in a way that that helps us to listen to our neighbors better. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much about our context in the U.S. right now that is um, so divided and so siloed uh, and so walled off. You know, those people over there who believe X. Sure. Um, that can can we cultivate a capacity to listen to recognize. God is working in really diverse and creative ways. And so instead of making my story the norm and judging you against my story, am I able to listen to your story and your experience and to hear you fully for how you have encountered the world? And by that, because I think by that we build community, we experience something new about God, our, our, our understanding of who God is, our understanding of who we are expands. Um, I think we're, it's part of walking towards a Revelation 7-9 kind of life where we recognize that there's this immense diversity in the community of God and that there's beauty in that and there's something that we can learn about who God is. Uh, we can learn about God's character and nature in, in the, the multitude of diverse expressions that exist in the world uh, of God's people and what that looks like and how God works. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's something I'm hoping, you know, that, that's bigger than this book, but I'm hoping this book will, will kind of be one little step towards um, that kind of life and engagement. I'm so grateful that Susan's book is in the world to offer as a resource for those of us, and I raise my hand here, whose journey of understanding God's calling continues to feel a lot more like a bowl of spaghetti than a straight line. I hope you consider pre-ordering Susan's book before it releases on April 19th. You can find it at ivypress.com, and we've linked to it in the article page. And if you listen all the way to the end of the credits, I've included a bonus from our interview where Susan generously responds to an existential question I had about the idea of a legacy, and she shares her wisdom despite a little bit of lawnmower noise in the background. All Shall Be Well is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. 
And as we close, listen in on this bit of my conversation with Susan as we discuss legacy. You know, I want to ask a question, and I'm not sure if we'll leave this in the podcast um, recording, but it's something that I think about a lot when the idea of legacy comes up. Um, I think for me that the idea of leaving a legacy or doing significant things in the world is connected to my fear of death my, um, the unknown of, uh, eternal life. I mean, I believe that we have eternal life, but I don't know what that's going to be like. And, um, and I can, I can just tell in myself that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 47 now, which isn't, I mean, I've got some more years to go, I hope, but I'm looking for ways to continue to assure that my presence is known. I have kind of, a, I think I have a fear of, um, of not being known. I mean, it's, these are really existential questions. And then do you run into these questions as you get into calling and legacy? Oh, sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I do personally, I do particularly, um, particularly midlife, right? Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't, I'm those, there. <laughs> yeah, those aren't exactly the questions that 20 year olds ask. Right. Kind of, maybe, depending on temperament. I mean, some some 20 year olds are very existential in their in their questions. Uh, and, and that's the way they're wired. But but more so, I find you know, people in their in their 20s and 30s, who are kind of looking around and going, Oh, oh hang on, I guess I'm a grown up. Um, is this the life I'm supposed to be leading right. here? Or or those of us who are, you know, someday, someday when I'm older, X, Y, Z will happen. And then we get to be in our 40s and 50s and, and look around and go, oh, um, I guess someday is now. Right. This is the life that I have. <laughs> um, the kind of midlife reexamination of, oh, I made some assumptions about someday, but this is the reality and how do I feel about that? And mm-hmm. is this is this the life I'm supposed to be living? Um, as well as I think, by God's grace, um, our bodies at some point our bodies say that's enough. Like mm. there there is a there is that early season of our life. You know, Richard Rohr talks about the first half and the second half of life, right? Yeah. So the first half of life, you know, it's this performing and doing and and we, we may build up this false self. Um, and I don't, it's not so much I want to focus on that bit, but it's, it's the, it's the, there's a rightness in our twenties and thirties, somewhat into our forties of doing, like we're trying to produce, we're doing stuff. Uh, and then there comes some point where kind of look around and for some of us, like our bodies just say enough already. Nope. I'm done. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and either it's, um, in severe cases, it can be a natural illness. In some cases, it's just exhaustion, emotional, mental, physical exhaustion, and we get to the end of ourselves. Uh, and it, we can call it burnout. We can call it midlife crisis. But we could also say it's an invitation into the wilderness. You know, we hit the wall. If you think about um, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick's book, The Critical Journey, you know, they talk about the wall coming to the wall where we've been performing, performing, perform, 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 which, which performance is so connected to calling. 
mm-hmm. a lot of times, right? So we've been doing, 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 and we get to a point where, where really it is the Spirit's invitation to come to the wall and discover we have come to the end of ourselves. And, and there's this holy space, this holy invitation into the wilderness. Um, and for some of us in some of our theological contexts, we run screaming from the wilderness because the wilderness is the bad place. You know, the wilderness is sin. The wilderness is destruction. You know, no, we can't. We have to have victory. We have to have triumph. We have to, we have, to have success. But can we recognize that there may be this space of the spirit inviting us into the wilderness where it is dry and it is lonely and it is that our performance goes way down we we don't we can't our production doesn't feel the same way anymore um, but it's an invitation to a deeper journey to experiencing what it's like to know god in the wilderness and to know god uh, at the end of ourselves and to know god without our production and our performance um, which if the critical journey paradigm is true it's really an invitation into a second half of life into or a third third for some people uh, of a of this much more profound rooted holistic grace-filled way of being that is we're still producing but it's not about production it's about being Um, and that that there does come a time i think middle of life later in life when God is actively inviting us into that kind of journey and it takes turning our back being willing to let go of the performance and production that that can be so central to our understanding of calling